This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. At one time, many people in the Western world anticipated retiring in their 50s or their 60s. Now, they're embarking on new careers at the very time when they might have been expected to begin a life of leisure. Increased longevity and a drive to keep contributing to society have led to what are often referred to as encore careers. Marcy Albaher, author of The Encore Career Handbook, How to Make a Living and a Difference in the Second Half of Life, spoke to Stuart Friedman, Wharton Practice Professor of Management and Director of the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project, about second and even third acts. Hi, I'm Stu Friedman. I am the director of the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project here at the Wharton School and a professor in the management department. And I'm thrilled to welcome today Marcy Alberher, who is here on the Penn campus celebrating her 25th uh, reunion. Uh, she is the um, author of the Encore Career Handbook, How to Make a Living and a Difference in the Second Half of Life, which was released earlier this year. And uh, she is a leading authority uh, on the changing face of work and is vice president at Encore.org, which is a nonprofit that is devoted to making it easier for the millions of people who are pursuing uh, second acts for the greater good. Welcome, Marcy. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Stu. Let's start off with just some basic definitions. What is an Encore career, and what is Encore.org? Great. Okay, good place to start. So an Encore career is a second or third act that combines personal meaning with social impact and continued income. And continued income is an important part of that definition because Mm -hmm. for some people— Um, the continued income is optional. If you've made enough money to take care of yourself for the rest of your life, your Encore career may not be a paid um, piece of work. But for the majority of people, it is. Mm -hmm. And Encore.org is a national nonprofit that's been in this game close to a decade now Mm -hmm. that is trying to pave the way for the growing number of people who want to have Encore careers, who want to plan not for a leisure-based retirement, but for a later stage of work that has some impact in the world, some positive impact in the world. And we do that through a variety of programs. We could get into all of those if you'd like. But the the most famous one is the Purpose Prize. Yes. We give out $100,000 prizes to social entrepreneurs over the age of 60. So the idea of that is to change what you think about innovation and Mm -hmm. aging. By? By elevating these role models of Mm -hmm. people who are innovating in huge ways in the years that we used to think of as the time of life where you start receding away rather than continuing to be engaged. Could you give us a recent example of a Purpose Prize winner and why they earned it? Sure. We're sitting here in Philadelphia. So someone from Philadelphia comes to mind, Barbara Allen, who was a a museum administrator who had taken off some time to raise her kids. Mm -hmm. And. Um, She was always in design and the arts, and she got involved in a project where she was asked, along with her son, to help decorate the um, Philadelphia uh, building, a school superintendent building. And uh, they decided what they wanted to do is they they were asked to bring the the images of children into this building so Mm -hmm. that people would have a sense of who they were serving. Mm -hmm. So her son had done a lot of work. He'd worked in printing and design with large-scale printing. Mm -hmm. And they came up with this idea to get a treasure trove of children's art that was created in schools Mm -hmm. schools, Mm -hmm. and to blow that up into these giant... 
kind of uh, works of art that could be used to decorate the hallways. Mm -hmm. And it was so successful, this project, that an idea was born. And she said um, she was really concerned about the um, budget cuts for art supplies and art programming mm -hmm. in um, public schools in Philadelphia. So they came up with this model where they created what she calls student philanthropists. So the students make art and they blow these pieces up like she had done for that one mm -hmm. project with her son. Corporations buy the art from the students mm -hmm. and decorate their walls and, um, and the, all the money goes to buying, replenishing those art budgets in the schools that um, have had these budget cuts. And it's a sustainable business model. Mm -hmm. The corporations are feeding the money in to fund mm -hmm. this venture. Um, it's called Fresh Artists. So anyway, it's, and it's replicable. It's somebody, something that people are looking at all over the country as an interesting model to help inner city schools that are struggling. And it creates this sense of philanthropy with the students mm -hmm. who are actually, and they get to see their art on the wall of these companies. Fantastic. And the companies get this great. Everyone wins. Yeah, everybody wins. It's a community project. So that's so. a great example. Great example. Um, there, there are others that you probably write about in your book that I'm sure uh, would be of great interest. And if we have time, we'll, we'll get into a couple more of those. But let's step back and... Um, Looking at the big picture, why is there so much interest in this topic now? Right. So I would say there's a few things that have converged in, in the time that we're living. Mm -hmm. So demography is a big par part of it. We've mm -hmm. heard about the gray tsunami, right, the aging wave of baby boomers coming mm -hmm. down the pipe. Uh, they've been called the, the greedy geezers that are coming to uh, deplete Ouch. social security, right? <laughs> so... Um, 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day, mm -hmm. and it's going to be like that for the next 20 years or so. Mm. We're going to, and I think the year is 2050, we're going to have more people over 65 than under 30. I mean, this is a very mm -hmm. big demographic shift. At the same time, we have kind of a longevity shift, too. And it's not so much that we're living longer. We are living longer, technically, by a few years, but we're living... Um, the period of life that's this extended midlife from your like 50s to your 70s, if you maintain your health, those are years of vitality and engagement that used to be years that weren't that useful to people. Mm -hmm. And that could be a pretty long period that's opening up. So this work was really pioneered by the founder of the organization I now work for, Mark Friedman. And um, his, his no vision. Relation. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and spelled different. He's E-E-D. spelled incorrectly. Yeah, yeah. So his, his, uh, his idea was, rather than viewing this aging population as a problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to drain our national resources. It's going to make it harder for young people, all of these things. What if instead we said, we have this great wave of talent and experience that could be applied to solving the, big, the world's biggest social problems? Mm -hmm. So what if we looked at this aging population as a resource rather than a problem, as a legion of problem solvers, mm -hmm. really? rather than a problem. So that's a the genesis. of problem solvers. Yeah, a cadre, a yeah, mm -hmm. an army. And so that's mm -hmm. really what we're trying to do is figure out, like, so how do we take that idea mm -hmm. and turn it into reality and mobilize all the people who want to do this encore work? So is this only about people who are moving from the private sector to the nonprofit sector? Or what about those people who have spent their lives and careers already you know, doing work of service? Yes, like people in education, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no, it's not just about people who are sector switchers. Mm -hmm. It's about um, – but there is something that happens to you after you've been doing any kind of work for 20 or 30 years – 
where you get this need or this interest in shaking it up a little. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not uniform. Many, many people figure out how to shake it up within the confines of what they do. Mm -hmm. But um, I've now interviewed hundreds of people at this life stage. And what happens is, you know, you get to a point, you know, you've been in the classroom maybe, you know, public school teacher for 30 years, and mm -hmm. you're ready to get off your feet, but you are not done with education. So mm -hmm. that's where we see these people who go into education policy reform or taking all those years of on-the-ground knowledge and figuring out, like, what's wrong with the system that I'm now in the position to see and change and dedicate all that time to? Mm -hmm. and Or how can I mentor the next generation of people who are coming into my field who need the knowledge that I've amassed? So we see it happening mm -hmm. across the board um, of people wanting to have an impact but in a new way, even if they feel like their whole life has been about having a social contribution in the world. How did you get into this? Yeah, so I got into it both personally, mm -hmm. um, a little pre-encore in terms of kind of slightly younger than the people that we look at, but mm -hmm. um, I'm always thinking about the future, so I've got self-interest here in mm -hmm. mind. But I also came at this as a journalist, so mm -hmm. I had a few career re reinventions myself. In my first career, I was a, a corporate lawyer. Um, and after about nine years, I realized I, I, was, I was having a really bad fit for, with my organization. And this mm. totally relates to the work you do, Stu, in that I was having a values clash with the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. I, I, f I felt like I was representing companies that I didn't believe in and practices mm. that I couldn't support. And I kind of had a crisis of conscience. Mm. But at the same time, I also realized that rather than just reinventing the law, the law was a bad fit for me. And I needed to reinvent in a kind of bigger way. So that I left the law. must have been very, very challenging for you personally. It was. It was challenging, and it took a long time. Mm. It wasn't an overnight transition. And even mm. when, I, though I was young, I was in my 30s when mm. I made that first transition. And I quit my law job, and I tried to become a writer, which was what I originally wanted to do. I'd been an English major when I went to Penn. Mm -hmm. I could never figure out how to turn that into paid work. I, I hadn't <laughs> discovered journalism in those days. Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't um, go on a natural progression. So um, I decided I want to become a writer, and I, w I went back and I took some classes, little classes at, mm -hmm. at community centers. And I took one class at the New School and one at a local JCC in, the, in New York City where mm -hmm. I live. And within two classes, I started publishing pieces. I got a piece in the New York Times after my first piece, after my first class, and mm -hmm. I said, wow, I've had more professional satisfaction out of this one article I just got published than anything I'd done in the nine years previously. Hmm. So long story short, I spent a couple of years hmm. trying to turn that early kind of sign of promise into really what was going to be a sustainable career. And it took a long time, and it wasn't yeah, easy. And I had sure. to find new mentors. Hmm. And I had to learn from a bunch of 20-year-olds who were already way ahead of me in hmm. this game. And uh, well, that's probably a major issue for a lot of encore kinds. Exactly, of, uh, I was seeing switches, the very right? things I now report on, like that you have to find mentors who are younger than you, who understand how the world works now in the mm -hmm. world that you want to break into, and accept that. Yes, right? um, I'm sure a lot of people resist that sort of mentoring from people younger than them. Right, but that's that's the best way to kind of mm -hmm. stay in the game and stay relevant is to figure out how to have intergenerational relationships in the workplace. We all need to figure out that in the workplace. Mm -hmm. How can young people learn from older people mm -hmm. and how can older people learn from younger people? So for the next 10 years, um, I, I wrote um, as a journalist, mostly for the New York Times, um, but for many other publications as well, about kind of workplace trends and the changing face of work and how the world of work, world is constantly changing and we are ch constantly changing to keep up and stay relevant. and. Um, so you're, you're in this space, so you know the kinds of things I, I write about, you know, how we can um, combine work and life in better ways than we've been doing, mm -hmm. how organizations and people can be smarter and more effective about those kinds of things, demographic ch changes that were shifting the way people work. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that work, 
I started to learn about what was happening at Encore.org, which used to be called Civic Ventures. And I reviewed um, Mark Friedman's uh, two books ago. He wrote a book called Encore, Mm -hmm. which really put this big idea out in the world. And uh, I covered that book for The New York Times, and I got to know him. And he became one of these trusted sources, a guy I went to Mm -hmm. whenever I wrote about social entrepreneurship and baby boomers and demographic trends and social purpose work. And I wrote so many pieces on this um, that it became like a little mini beat for me. Mm-hmm. Um, this Encore stuff really intrigued me. And uh, in the wake of all of that, um, I, I had a column in the blog for The Times called Shifting Careers. And in 2008, in the midst of uh, the recession and the media implosion, The New York Times canceled my column and blog. And here I was kind of writing about the recession and how it's impacting mm-hmm. people. And suddenly I'm trying to, Once I'm going to have to think about my own experience. next steps. Mm-hmm. And I was a little older than I was the last time, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure my skills were as good as Mm. the 20-year-olds coming into the workplace. And I was really trying to think about how can I continue to have an impact? And I wasn't sure that the media was going to be the best place for me to do that. Mm. And um, I wrote a piece about this for my blog. I wrote the parting column on uh, what it's like to be uh, a workplace writer who's out of work. I remember that. You remember it. It got a lot of response. And one of the first people who responded to me was Mark Friedman from Mm. Encore.org. And he wrote me a note. And he said, uh, I'm really interested in talking to you uh, about your future plans. And we started what I call like one of those professional courtships that goes mm-hmm. on for a long time. And we spent the next year. I continued to work in journalism. Mm-hmm. I got a blog at Yahoo where I continued to write about mm-hmm. the new economy, the the always new economy. That's our permanent name for what we work right. in now, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and eventually, Mark and I decided that I should come over to Encore.org and lead a piece of our work that was all about kind of helping people better understand this idea and and really helping people make the steps from thinking this is a good idea for society to figuring out and how do we make this happen for ourselves? How do we create a career that's going to sustain us for 50 years Mm. and not for 30 years like we used to have? Let's get let's get a little further into that because sure. I'm sure a lot of our uh, readers and um, viewers are, are interested in some of the practical aspects of this, uh, which the book is just filled with. So, for example, what do you say to someone who feels like, well, I'm just too old to do this. Uh, you know, I've I've already had a lot. I'm I'm tired. I don't have really yeah. the, the energy. I mean, I'd like to do something new, but. Can I really retool? Yeah, yeah. What, what do you? What's the advice you have for people who have that mindset? Right. So um, there's this uh, Zen concept of beginner's mind, right? This way that you learn something new um, with the eyes of a beginner, and it's actually a pretty exciting thing. So. I, I think we all have the cap- capacity to continue to learn. And, tr- and truthfully, if you become a lifelong learner, you will keep that skill from atrophying. So it's a pretty important part of aging to learn how to learn new things and to exercise that muscle often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the truth is it's something that you have to do if you want to figure out how to continue to have impact in the world, how to stay relevant, and how to stay in the game. And I was just at my 25th reunion, and I think our class was like at the beginning of people who are just dealing with this. We all see 50 right ahead of us. We're thinking, wow, that's 25 years of more work I can do, and I'm not done. Mm -hmm. Um, I could have a career that is as long as what I've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. Perhaps longer. Perhaps longer. So, and I found people all over my class who were going back to school, who were embarking um, on master's programs, who are going back to um, 
for a certificate somewhere, for an online program. I met this woman, and she's a classic example, who had stayed home for 20 years raising her kids, who um, got interested, based on a lot of what we're seeing climate-wise, in uh, especially the East Coast lately, where we live, mm -hmm. um, she got interested in coastal erosion. And she's going back to school to learn about coastal erosion um, so that she can work in urban planning to help present some of the disasters that we're going to be facing in coming years. It is a field she never even knew existed 25 mm. years ago when she first uh, planned. And she was saying that mm -hmm. back at Penn, she barely took a science class. Like, she is, a, she was interested in science, but she went in a whole different, she was a Wharton person. She hadn't even thought about mm -hmm. this field as something that could interest her. So what role do universities play in this? Uh, one of the things that we're doing here at Wharton is uh, um, investing in lifelong learning yeah. in a significant way. Uh, how does that play into uh, the Encore movement? I think universities are going to be a huge part of this, and all of higher education. We've done work with community from community colleges mm -hmm. up through Wharton and Harvard Business School. Like we believe that higher education is the key to helping people through this because people are going to go to places in their community, they're going to go to their alma maters, and they're mm -hmm. going to go to the name brand in the field they want to learn about mm -hmm. because they're going to have to retool. So it's a great market opportunity for higher education to be thinking about about um, how do you serve both your alumni through their own life, co life course and how do you serve the greater population who want to learn about the areas that you have the name brand program so that you could be attracting the public. So I believe my, you know, my vision is that the way executive education is now so standard, Encore education will be just as standard a buzzword. So the Encore mm -hmm. is how can I retool for a second act that's going to have a greater good, you know, a greater mm -hmm. good impact. And you're going to look at all the schools that have the programs for the thing you want to do, but you're going to want to make sure that they know how to serve uh, somebody of your generation. Uh -huh. So are mm -hmm. they going to help you with the tech support you might need if you mm -hmm. haven't been in the classroom for 20 years? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be as flexible as you want to be. So executive education was built around serving the corporate employee who right. had certain particular needs. Encore, the Encore mar market may have some of those needs mm -hmm. in common, mm -hmm. but they're going to have a whole different set of needs. And the, I think the smartest players in higher ed are going to recognize what those needs are to make sure that they deliver the product in a way that the Encore population is going to want to learn. Very important advice. Yeah. Um, what about age discrimination? Does that still exist in the oh, workplace yeah. and oh, in yeah. society? And how does that play into the Encore movement? Yeah, so age discrimination really does exist. And I have to say, even sitting here, we should try to catch ourselves. If we are, mm -hmm. if we are saying things like, you know, those younger folks are more tech savvy or those, we all kind of have these stereotypes that mm -hmm. we parrot because we think this is the way the world works. But what's interesting is as, um, as people who are more experienced stay in the workplace, it's going to be much more common to see people of all ages playing roles in the workplace. Education is interesting because I think there is, it's a place where it's a little comfortable. To, we, have, we have respect for age and experience and wisdom in education the way it doesn't exist in some other fields. Mm -hmm. um, and education is a really hot encore field. Another hot encore field that really values age and experience is healthcare. And healthcare is where all the jobs and opportunities are right mm -hmm. now. It is the, the sector that we see the most steady continued growth you know, quarter after quarter. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting in healthcare is there are all these jobs and roles for which um, having lived through some health issues of your own, mm -hmm. having been a caregiver perhaps, mm -hmm. are really, really useful and make people marketable when they go into the marketplace. So yes, ageism exists. Um, 
But the best, best way to combat it is to find sectors where age is appreciated and wisdom is welcome and experience mm-hmm. is valued, but also to dispel those stereotypes. You've acknowledged it. Wharton, you've written some great pieces about this. I, I was reading something by Peter Capelli about mm-hmm. combating these myths we have. You know, mm-hmm. There's this myth that you hire an older worker and they're not going to stay. Mm-hmm. And the, the data all shows that older older workers dig in. That's what they're used to. They're mm-hmm. used to finding a job and staying there and being committed. They do not expect to flit around from one employer to another. Mm-hmm. There is another myth that they're more expensive because of health care. But the truth is a lot of older workers, their kids are off their health care plans. Mm-hmm. They are less, you know, they could be less expensive than having younger workers to support. Um, so there's, a, you know, there's and, and we all, when we're in a position to hire, we have to be thinking about what does it mean to have an intergenerational team mm-hmm. as a new kind of diversity to look at. So building teams that have the enthusiasm of youth and the experience that age can bring, we all have to start thinking about that. So uh, we're going to have to wrap up here. Uh, yeah. what's, what's the most important thing you'd want to convey to people who are interested in pursuing an encore career, but they just don't know how to get started? Yeah. So I, I want to leave with two thoughts. So the, the how to get started is... Um, there's a two-part process. The first is there's something you have to do in your head first, right? You have to figure out, you know, where you are in your life and what you're mm-hmm. looking for. So um, you focus a lot on people who are in the throes of their mid-career, where they're kind of at that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Well, what can you be doing to add more social impact to where you are right now if that's where you're sitting? And if you're planning for the future, if you're a few years off from what would be the time where you're ready to make a shift, what could you do now to lay the foundation? Could you be exploring what interests you? Could you mm-hmm. be taking some courses on the side? Could you be connecting with other people who are interested in this idea? Who Could you be volunteering more or doing some pro, bo- to, pro bono consulting for mm-hmm. organizations? you care about. So that, that's kind of something you should be doing now. And then I just also want to make sure that people recognize that this just isn't about you and your own reinvention. You have a part, you have a possibility, if you get into this encore idea, to be a part of changing the world for future generations. So mm-hmm. the pioneers who are figuring out how to have a really big impact in the later years of their career are going to be helping to create a whole new kind of paradigm for what work looks like, the way the pioneers of the women's movement did it in the 60s. I mean, I've mm-hmm. talked to a lot of women who are in encore careers now mm-hmm. who were trailblazers in the 1960s as the first women at work, mm-hmm. who are now trailblazers as the first women to have encores in the workplace. So mm-hmm. I think this is a really interesting and exciting time to be a part of. Marcy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Author of The Encore Career Handbook, How to Make a Living and a Difference in the Second Half of Life, which is is filled with uh, all kinds of wonderful examples and practical advice uh, for those who are thinking about or in the midst of or helping other people to think through and act on um, making that next step. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stu. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.